0: Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest, Dr. Danielle Terrassas williams doctor Terrassa Terrazas-Williams is lecturer of the Global South in the School of History at the University of Leeds in England. She has held fellowships at Princeton University, Cornell University, and the Huntington. Her award-winning research has appeared in the Americas, the Journal of Women's History, and History of Religions. Her forthcoming book, The Capital of Free Women, Race, Legitimacy and Liberty in Colonial Mexico will be published by Yale University Press in April, 2022 and is available for pre-order. Her work challenges traditional narratives of racial hierarchies and gendered mobility in Mexico's understudied period of 1580 to 1730. Only one generation removed from slavery Free African descended women owned businesses and land, served as influential matriarchs, managed intergenerational wealth, and even owned slaves of African descent. The book posits that the same regional openness that fostered their ascent throughout the 17th century eventually led to their financial and therefore archival marginalization by the second half of the 18th century. Thank you so much for joining
1: me today, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation.
0: My pleasure. So uh, let's just jump right in. So you grew up in Richmond, California, how did your early life shape your professional interests in Afro Latin American communities?
1: I think growing up in the Bay Area, especially as someone of both African American and Mexican American descent, growing up in a African American and Mexican American neighborhood in Richmond, California, um, you know, I really thought about these two communities for a very long time, Um, but I didn't really see, for example, what I did in school as Um, something that I tied to my own scholarly interests, right? So I felt like I was taking history classes, you know, even in high school, and I was much better in math and science, and, you know, I didn't feel that connection. Um, But I started really thinking about Uh, For example, you know, what I was doing sort of outside of the classroom, Um, my great grandmother was a school teacher and my grandmother had inherited many of her books. And so I was reading about black history on my own, sort of in the privacy of my home. Um, And I didn't see it as, oh, this is what historians do, because I felt like, well, in my high school classes, that's not what I saw um, happening as far as the stories that I wanted to read. Um, so I would say, you know, early on, I didn't really make that strong connection between, um, you know, my own interest in the history of Black people and Mexicans, and my reading in my house, and then, you know, sort of what I did for school. So it really didn't come until I was in college. You know, I sometimes meet these people who said I always knew I wanted to be a historian. And that just wasn't <laughs> my case at all. In fact, I I thought I would become a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. But what I realized about what I thought I really enjoyed about law was piecing together disparate pieces of information to make the most credible narrative. And then I said, oh, I could actually do this as a professional historian. <laughs> so that sort of changed my trajectory. Um, but it wasn't until maybe sort of junior year in college where I started thinking about, um, you know, pursuing a PhD and, and what it would mean to have you know the the opportunity to pursue histories of black people
0: great i wanted to ask you Wanted to go back a minute you talked about um, about your upbringing in the in the bay area Mm -hmm. in an african-american and mexican-american community i just wanted to know if you could say a little bit more about that experience
1: yeah, I mean, I think it was such a, you know, a beautiful benefit to be from, you know, both those cultures and be surrounded by those cultures, right? So even, you know, when I was in private school, it was predominantly um, African American, a couple of Mexican Americans, a couple of white students. But, you know, I think that being surrounded by other families um, that look like mine, that had similar traditions, that had similar, um, you know, um, uh, cultural references that it was just a you know um a wonderful a wonderful opportunity to think through both mexican americanness and african americanness um mm-hmm. which was quite different when i sort of went to college and then you know i wasn't raised around people who were um you know afro latinos right and so um you know, other communities were, for example, if you, if you go down to San Jose, there are more communities, for example, um, of Puerto Ricans and, and specifically Afro-Puerto Ricans, but that really wasn't my reality growing up. Um, so going to Cornell University, where I was around so many um, Caribbean folks from, you know, all over, whether they were born and raised in the islands or from New York City or from the greater tri-state, I was just like, oh, this is, this is Blackness within, you know, the Latin American context. Um, and whereas I grew up in a, in a setting where it was African Americans and Mexican Americans and um, those communities. Um, sometimes having conflicts with one another, but you know, the community I grew up in, I didn't really see that I saw us living next door to each other, knowing each other's families playing in the same, you know, parks and things like that. So um, it, it was a little bit different. Um, so going to to uh, college sort of brought on this, uh, this new lens, this new experience of having people who had grown up um, mm-hmm. in sort of Afro Latinidad. Excellent. So
0: so I'm think, I think I can see kind of all the pieces coming together. <laughs> I, so I know you're really passionate about centering stories of black women, especially their kind of daily efforts uh, in the in the colonial Mexico period that you study, but also their daily efforts to rebel and resist. And yeah. I'm hoping you can one hope looking forward to you telling us a little bit more about uh, why you were drawn to these areas to this topic
1: yeah i think it really um i think about my great grandmother um annie ruth johnson who's from um, greenville mississippi who owned a funeral parlor um, who was a school teacher in the segregated south and um knowing her as a child and thinking like wow she's just such a dynamic woman at that time um in the the final years of her life, she was also blind, so she was also a disabled black woman um, who had you know lived this such dynamic life. And I wanted to know more um, about black women's history, and had you know had spent much of that time sort of early on um, in my early years thinking about other African American women, um, and then sort of um, transitioning to think more diasporically, and and wanting to see, you know, what the history was like for Black women in Mexico, and it really came about because, I, you know, I wanted to do a project on the history of Black people, and a mentor of mine at Cornell said, well, why don't you focus on Mexico? You know the language, you know the culture, it's, you know, it sounds like a good opportunity, and so here I was saying, okay, you know, let's see what they have in the archive, and I started with the notorial archive, and I was finding all of the, these rich stories, and also just, you know, sometimes just sparse references to Black women's lives. And um, it just it just drew me in, and, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do is to write the history of Black women. Um, and so, the capital of free women, um, race legitimacy, and liberty in colonial Mexico focuses on a constellation of these really daring women. Um, some as uh, some uh, narratives are from as early as the as the 1580s, and you know sort of end in the 1730s, but. I think one of the things that really struck me was um, their resiliency um, across the board. You know, what did it mean to fight for your rights in front of colonial authorities who owned women and people who looked like you and your family members, right? What does it mean to sort of show up in those spaces and, and feel like you had a right to be there? Um, and again, I sort of think back about my, my own great-grandmother who who grew up in a segregated, um, in the segregated South, uh, US South, and say, you know, what did it mean to to fight to be a Black woman entrepreneur in such spaces, mm-hmm. you know, to be so visible, um, and also to be, um, you know, also also vulnerable um, in many ways. And so, so these are the types of stories that I was finding, and I was, I was so compelled to share them, um, that I started this type of research when I was an undergraduate at Cornell, I was part of a, a college scholar program in which you were allowed to sort of create your own major and pursue your own research, and had you know wonderful opportunities for mentorship. And I'm so grateful that for that program because it it really you know I was able to sow the seeds of this lifelong commitment to the history of Black people in Mexico. Um, you know, the first project is about Black women, but you know the the larger questions of resiliency and, um, and you know, the the everyday acts of resistance that we get to see through, you know, something as sometimes can be mundane as the Notorial Archive was really compelling. And um, I'm, again, so grateful that I'm able to share these stories.
0: Mm, so are we. I'm wondering, too, because you mentioned your great-grandmother, I'm wondering, too, if, there, if there's a particular woman in the uh, archival records that you were looking at that that remains with you that uh, you just her story really speaks to you.
1: Yeah, I think it really comes down to a woman that I encountered when I was, I think, you know nineteen or twenty years old when I first found um, one reference to her and actually it was um, her story her story initially disoriented me because I found her while I was looking through manumission records and I was, the project at that time for this um, BA program was just tracking manumission trends. I was really curious to see, you know, who was manumitting whom and when and how often, you know, um, how often, if whether there were any um, cycles and trends that I could follow throughout 17th century Mexico. And I found this this uh, this case of this woman, and um, she's noted as a mulata libre. And I was like, is she, um, is that true? You know, is she a black woman who's freeing someone here? And um, it really, you know, I sort of, I sort of stopped because I'd only been encountering Spanish slave owners at that point. And so she really struck me and I really started to step back and say like, okay, you know, what was her life like? And Surprisingly, which we all know as for anyone who does work in the colonial period, that um, usually it sort of ends there because there aren't enough, um, you know, follow-up materials. But unlike many others that I then encountered many years later, there there was a good, you know, body of of documents to follow her story and her family story. Um, and this is a woman named Polone de Rivas, and she was a mulata libre, a free mulata. And she owned her two siblings, um, her two, what we may call half siblings. Mm-hmm. She refers to them as the hijos de mi madre, which is a very specific uh-huh, <laughs> designation yep. instead of just saying hermanos, <laughs> Exactly. Mm-hmm. but uh, she refers to them as the children of her mother instead of her, just her brothers. And she also owned sort of countless other slaves. Um, I don't have an exact number. I know she had um, three slaves that are documented, but then she also dowered her daughter for an untold number of slaves. And so I'm not sure, you know, sort of how many slaves accounted um, were accounted there. But she was a woman who, um, you know, what does it mean for a free black woman in 17th century central Beracruz who is unmarried? has daughters, she does have a son as well, and who is never identified um, again as like a widow or anything like that. Her mother is, she identifies as born in Guinea. Of course, you know, that designation uh, could mean uh, a couple of things, but you know, her mother was born in Africa, mm-hmm. and that she, her mother was enslaved, and yet she is a slave owner, and she owns her two brothers, and this very complicated woman um you know has stayed with me you know for now almost <laughs> nearly 20 years right, right um because of how dynamic um you know her story was and how complicated it is and and what does it mean you know what does family mean in this context um what does her own sense of her vulnerability mean in this context why would she choose to make these choices um and, and so I wrote an article about um, her, her story um, in 2018 in the Americas, and then was able to find additional materials to include to expand that story for the book. So actually, unlike many other women where I only have, you know, sometimes only a few pages to talk about um, them, for Polonia de Rivas, I actually have a full, you know, developed chapter just for her in the book because... Um, you know, I guess because I felt very sort of close to the story at that point. And I, and I really felt like any details I could add um, that she deserved to have her story told and in as much detail and, um, and life as I could give it. So um, she's, she's someone that stayed with me for quite some time.
0: That's wonderful that you're able to find so much material and to make her a central component of not just an article, but also of the book. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to that being available to to the general public. Now, as a scholar and an educator, how then would you say that your work contributes to our understanding of kind of broader Afro-Latin American communities, especially in this colonial period?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's been so much great work, I mean, not just for Mexico, but so many other places as well, um, of course, for um, Cartagena de Indias or, or Lima or Peru more broadly by people um, like our colleagues, Michelle McKinley or Nicole von Germinton, um Rio Elena Martinez for Mexico, Tamara Walker. I just think of so many wonderful scholars, um, Marlin Cars, you know, for, uh, for Dutch territories um, that... What I wanted to add to the legacies of the history of um, Afro-Latin American history was an earlier period that focused on women who we might consider of sort of a middling a, a, a middling economic range oftentimes. Um, I refer to them mostly as women of means. Some mm-hmm. are indisputably wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're multi-generational landowners. They have uh, they own slaves they own businesses they own very large homes and some you know are you know very new to life as free women um, but one of the things that I think is important about the work that I do is to offer sort of the dynamism of this moment um, of this changing landscape of and specifically of this um, site that they're in central Veracruz which at the time is um, a place in which, you know, sort of all of coloniality is arriving to, forced to, and encountering one another. Mm -hmm. And specifically for these free Black women, um, which I wanted to focus on for this particular book project is to think about what would it have meant for them in, you know, the early 1600s to survey a landscape where, you know, Slavery was not on its way out. Mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't a horizon that they could imagine. And I talk about this in the book that, you know, their choices are, you know, their choices in life, chances are dictated by the fact that they're experiencing, you know, you don't have this long legacy, for example, of um, freedom movements um, that are um, emerging, for example, throughout the Caribbean. Um, you know, there's no Haitian revolution to say. You know, oh, there's something that we could look beyond. Um, but there, there's a there's a great legacy of marinage in in central Veracruz. It was always an active site. Um, and so they're also negotiating that space. So what does it mean to be a free black woman, knowing that they you're in sort of an area that has high maroon activity mm-hmm. and having to negotiate Spanish. A Spanish context, Spanish authorities, as they likely look at you with suspicion, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I think that that dictates a lot of the choices. So again, I think that one of the things that I wanted to add was an earlier period to focus on free women and free women of means, um, which I, you know, um, was much more familiar with the historiography for a later period, um, the late 18th and then of course the 19th century in places like Mm -hmm. the Caribbean, um, the Gulf Coast, um, you know, also in places in um, what became the U.S. South, but I think that my emphasis on this this earlier period in Mexico adds adds something to the conversation. Adds these women's stories that I hadn't, you know, read about before. So,
0: no, no, absolutely. I mean, again, I think a lot of, in a lot of ways we were. I mean, I certainly focus on the late 18th and 19th century. And there's a lot of material there, and so sometimes it becomes. Sometimes I, I stop myself and go, well, what was happening before, you know, a century or two earlier? How does it, how, how might it connect? Yeah. As you point out, a lot and a lot of time, ta- a lot of times, those there's less there's been less research done on the earlier periods than yeah. uh, than the later. So I'm so glad that you're uh, shedding some light and, and understanding on uh, these women, and then and again, in particularly these women, uh, free women of color, these free women of color of means, as you as you describe them. You know how how unusual is that in that time period, and and again because we see it, it's, it remains fairly unusual throughout the rest mm-hmm. of the time period. Again, depending on where you are located, and all of that. So I think these are important issues as, we, as you think about gender, as you think about uh, upward social mobility, um, access to economic resources, all of those pieces. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I've, you know, really always enjoyed about reading across um, both time periods and spaces and empires is, for example, I think about, you know, what the, you know, what my work does is, is extend the legacy, you know, backwards in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always, I'm always, um, you know, it always sort of shocks me to see the, the, the similarities that I have in the cases that I see in the late 16th and and the 17th century with cases in the 18th and 19th century, mm-hmm. um, I was thinking about um, Jessica Marie Johnson's book *Wicked Flesh*, and the final chapter of her book focuses on a black woman whose marriage is um, is questioned. It's actually questioned by her, essentially her sister-in-law. Um, and the last chapter of my book focuses also on Black women whose marriages were questioned. Now, um, unfortunately, for the two cases that I focus on, I, I don't have any idea who, who sort of questioned those marriages. But again, sort of the continued vulnerability of Black women that, you know, their marriages can't even, you know, there's always something that's suspicious about mm. Black womanhood, according to colonial authorities. Um, the fact that they were even willing to listen to the accusation um, even for the case of Justin Marie Johnson's um, that's cited in Justine Marie Johnson's book, that again, you know, there's there's um, just the the indignities as well, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, what does it mean to be a woman of a particular class? Uh, in in my case, a Maria, uh, a woman named Maria um, Gandelaria, who is um, her husband is a second generation landowner. He's also uh, he's also a black man. She's uh, you know, a free black woman. Um, their children are born free, and someone is questioning her marriage. And what would it mean for a woman of that particular class to have to confront, you know, uh, Spanish officials to have mm-hmm. to prove that, you know, she's not an illegitimate wife, and that her children are not mm-hmm. illegitimate, just the, again, the, right. the, uh, the endlessness of the indignities that, you um, Black women had to challenge and encounter um, is something that, unfortunately, is um, a sad shared experience. As I've as I've read across again um, our fields and our and our time periods. So, um, but again, I do think it's it's also inspiring to think about you know the fact that Black women have been figuring out, you know, to a lesser or greater degree, how to negotiate these spaces. And I think that's one of the things that my work more broadly um, engages with is thinking about these specific different, uh, specific, different colonial institutions that have tried to circumscribe the lives of black women and how black women respond um, to such levels of sort of um, the imposition on their own lives.
0: Yeah, and I'm just thinking about even in the contemporary context. And so wondering, Mm -hmm. um, what would you, given your work and the way that it's situated, but also the world that we live in, what do you think are some of the most urgent issues for Afro-Latin American communities today, especially as they relate to the work that you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's been such, I mean, for generations now, such wonderful activist work that is being done in Mexico um, by scholars, scholar activists, um, community leaders. Um, I think about the work that Maria Lisa um, Velasquez has done for sort of the institutional giant that is um, INA in Mexico, sort of bringing just greater awareness of visibility um I was listening to uh season one and uh I believe it was um uh Stephanie is it Stephanie Jones I believe oh, Jennifer, Jennifer Jennifer Jones. Jones oh my goodness I'm yes. so mixing up Stephanie Jones Rogers and Jennifer Jones and um she said something that really just um that I I held on to which she said I don't think we're past sort of just Talking about you know the importance of, of presence and visibility, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I so agree with that. I just think that there's so much more that we can do um, about being bringing greater visibility um, to um, you know to the um, to contemporary experiences of um, Afro Latin Americans. Both in uh, both in Latin America as well as diasporically, um, and you know if my scholarly work can help in any way, I'm very happy that it can. But I am also very grateful to um, so many of the activists. Um, who are in Mexico doing amazing work, for example, who really fought for, um, constitutional recognition, Mm -hmm. um, which was a huge measure that been going on for years to try to get that done for Mexico, like the constitutional recognition of black people in Mexico. Um, there are, you know, constantly seminars and programs that are done by community leaders. And, you know, i what I would really like is for more people to know what people in Mexico are doing, right. That this is mm-hmm. not something that we, um, for example, scholars in the U S need to go in and fix that. There are plenty of people in Mexico. And I think that their yes. work needs to be highlighted. Their work needs to be centered um, because they have been doing, um, you know, oftentimes thankless work, unpaid labor mm-hmm. for now generations, um, you know, working on on with their own communities. So, I would say, um, you know, visibility, awareness, um, and, you know, funding measures, right? So whether there can be greater collaboration with institutions in the U.S. that can help, you know, advance the agendas of people who have been doing this work um, and have been in these communities for a very, very long time. Um, You know, so uh, again, I think visibility still matters. Um, You know, the presencia study still matters. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm happy to be part, any part of that. Excellent.
0: Uh, you mentioned a few organizers and a few scholars uh, throughout the, uh, com- our conversation, and as we kind of come up to our final, my final question, I like to mm-hmm. uh, give people an opportunity to talk about that. So in addition to your forthcoming yeah. uh, book and other articles, what other specific kinds of resources would you rec- recommend to people who are interested in learning more about Afro-Mexican and kind of broader Afro-Latin American communities?
1: You know, absolutely. I think, um, you know, for our Spanish um, readers uh, who are listening, I would definitely say, you know, if you can access the books of Maria Elisa Velasquez, Adriana Naveda, Ursula Camma, Sitlali um, Dominguez. Dominguez has um, a number of articles that there are a wealth of, of scholars in Mexico producing really wonderful um, monographs um, and, and shorter pieces as well. Um, that you know, that people can follow. Most of these people are also on, um, you know, social media and things like that. So you can you can follow them there. Um, But I think that, you know, some of the the best resources, again, um, are being, um, you know, some of the best resources are looking at what community activists are doing. Um, You know, there are lots of different uh, web pages people can turn to. Um, I would, you know, even start with ENA and looking at their website to get a sense of the program that they have. Um, going on. They always have sort of a dynamic group of, of people, both community activists and scholars, both Mexican as well as international scholars. So again, supporting the institutions that are, that are already been doing this work is, is really critical, um, as well as Mexican scholars who um, have been um, part of this fight for a lot longer. Um, and uh, so yeah, just support support other Mexican scholars.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey, uh, the passion for the work that you do, and certainly re- reminding us to look at the work that's already being done by people on the ground in Mexico and throughout Latin America on the African diaspora in that region. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Michelle.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereadbasquez.com forward slash podcast.